me white waffle. All right. Hello. Hello, Hello everybody. Hi, this is Jane. <laughs> and it's Chris here, back with another copyright waffle. Yeah, uh, we're uh, very excited, as ever, about Always. our guest um, that we have today. Our guest is uh, an academic librarian at the University of Derby. She is the fabulous Caroline Ball, uh, a former copyright specialist and a lover of cats. So we've got a lot in common. And um, I'm also really excited because we're interviewing you on International Women's Day and you're like a really cool woman in tech. So hello, <laughs> Caroline. <laughs> hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, we're, we're thank you for agreeing to do this. You have no idea what you've let yourself in for, do you? Nope. Absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, um, we're going to start off um, by kind of going straight in, I think, with the questions. And um, what what we really like to kind of ask people is what brought them into this, you know, fantastic, glamorous, um, exotic world of copyright? What What is it for you? You know, how did you first get into it? Why Why did you find copyright so interesting? And yeah, tell us a bit about that. Um. I mean, well, I probably shouldn't admit this on a on a public podcast, but uh, I honestly say that I learned most of what I know about copyright by breaking it. To be honest, um, mm, okay. <laughs> um, in the, my kind of initial route into copyright was things like fan fiction and music piracy. You know, back in the old Napster days, and, and yeah, some of our listeners might not remember back that far. Um, but particularly from the fan fiction side, um, I was kind of very interested in in copyright from that kind of perspective. And um, I ended up writing my master's dissertation on fan fiction um, and copyright and how the two kind of interacted. Um, yeah. And that that kind of the research for that gave me quite a lot of, of copyright knowledge, both US, US and UK. Um, and then having that knowledge kind of bled into then my professional life, you know, when I was asked about questions relating to licensing or use of materials, I, I kind of had all that in the back of my mind anyway from, from doing my master's dissertation. So it, it kind of became something that, as with a lot of things in library life, you kind of accrue responsibilities by being someone who knows vaguely about anything. Um, so it kind of became, oh, Caroline knows about copyright, ask her about this. And, and, then it just kind of built from there, really. Um, and then I, I went for a job at the university a good few years ago that was kind of a combined job in that it was part um, law librarian and part copyright advisor. Aha, yeah. So all of that kind of knowledge that had kind of just built up organically, really, just from kind of initially being interested in it from the copyright uh, and fan fiction angle, um, mm. and then just kind of building on that in a professional capacity basically ended up with it being a specialism of mine so it was it wasn't a conscious career path let's put it that way <laughs> it's once it's once you start people get to know that you know something about it it, it all attracts you like like a snowball or like like a magnet it, it all does. the stuff comes towards you I think yeah. copyright and copyright knowledge is one of those kind of it's like arcane wisdom, I think, that, uh, you know, you have it and you are the person with the knowledge. And most people are really quite intimidated by it and and don't really want to venture too far into it. And they find it very complicated. So once people start kind of being aware that, you know, something about it um, before too long, you end up having to know everything about it because you start Absolutely. fielding all of these kind of questions. Yeah, so, yeah. so you've mentioned your your dissertation and fan fiction, and that's definitely one of the things we wanted to ask you about, actually. So um, 
presumably this this dates back um, a few years. It was early earlier on when you you got into this world and you started asking those questions that then led you to sort of see the other aspects of it. So can you just talk us through what you discovered when you were doing that research? Presumably you were interested in fan fiction before you started looking into the legal aspects of it. Yeah, absolutely. I was a I was an avid reader of fan fiction and a writer of fan fiction. And I'm not going to tell you where you can find any of my stuff. Some of it <laughs> is still out there on the Internet. And we're talking a good few years ago. So some of it I would look back in absolute horror at. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was I was very key. I was a nerd, basically. Um, so I, I was really interested in fan fiction from that kind of perspective. And the uh, the fan fiction community was was a kind of online community that was quite self-aware and quite aware of all of these kind of legal issues. Mm. Um, you know, it was very common back in the day, not so much these days, for people to put what they would call disclaimers on their fan fiction, which was basically things like, I don't own any of this material. I, you know, none of this stuff is mine. I don't pretend to own it. Please don't mm. sue me. Mm. Um, and, you know, they don't tend to do that these days. But, um, you know, a good sort of 15, 20 years ago, I think, people did get sued for fan fiction. You know, there were kind of takedown notices. There were kind of cease and desist letters that went out. So the community as a whole was was quite aware of, of this kind of ambiguous, is it legal, is it not legal? Am I venturing into kind of thorny legal issues kind of here? So there was a lot of discussion in the fanfic community about copyright and about, you know, is it legal, is it not legal? Are there any legal defences? So it was kind of talk that was all... In, in the air and stuff that I was aware of. Um, so then when I was looking for a, a topic to write my master's dissertation on, it, it it seemed like something that would be fun to write about rather than, you know, borrower numbers or, or you know, access restrictions in public libraries or something <laughs> like that. I thought, you know, I can write about Star Trek and King Arthur and uh, Harry Potter and things like that, which seemed much more interesting, really. Yeah, the, definitely. Do you think it was because less people were doing it then that that's why there was a greater awareness? Or do you think, I don't know, It's really, that's really interesting that there was, you know, such a kind of discussion about copyright issues that doesn't happen so much. I think I think fan fiction now is very mainstream. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think lots and lots of people are aware of it. I think, you know, this kind of particip- participatory culture um, that we live in has really kind of gone mainstream in terms of, you know, fan movements, in terms of, co- you know, conventions, in terms of, yeah. you know, the, the art and the graphics and the videos and, and all of this kind of stuff has really, really gone mainstream now. You know, there's all that talk about kind of nerd is cool. Mm. But a lot of the stuff that was a kind of very niche nerdy internet kind of thing has has definitely moved mainstream now. And I think that's given fan fiction a, a huge amount of kind of respectability that it, it didn't really have sort of 15, 20 and, and longer years ago. Yeah. So I think, you know, in the early days of kind of online fan fiction, it, it, it was kind of a very nervous environment for a lot of fans mm. because, you know, there were a lot of authors and a lot of kind of rights holders that were really not sure about this whole fan fiction business and what these people are doing with our characters and are they making profit from it? And mm. and so there was quite a lot of litigation um, that went round. Um, you know, there were, there were websites taken down, there were fans who got sued, there were, you know, some authors particularly who were really against fan fiction. Um, so, so I can think... Can I ask what your, what your research question was then? What, what were you trying to find out when you decided to look into it really systematically? 
Um, I was largely exploring the kind of the differences between US and UK copyright law and mm-hmm. looking at all the kind uh, of various legal defenses that might be brought in on on the side of copyright. Um, so, it, you know, it was things like, particularly in the US, it was things like, you know, fair use. Um, you know, in the UK, it was things like the de minimis kind of doctrine and, and various kind of legal elements that that might be used in in defense of fan fiction. Um, so it was really kind of exploring that angle from it, um, which I found very, very interesting. And I, I kind of concluded that I thought fan fiction had a had a pretty good uh, legal defense at its back, which given <laughs> how mainstream it's got now is it was probably true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but one of the things that I've noticed when when looking into this is that the, the different authors have very different um, ideas about this, don't they? So the, the, there's clearly no consensus across authors as to whether it's a good or a bad thing so george rr R. martin is is very critical of fan fiction isn't he he's, as far as he's concerned there is his, his world he doesn't want other people messing around with that and, and others jaco um rolling more ha- so happier for it but still there was litigation for against you know harry potter parody wasn't there um so if you you know what are the kinds of things that authors tend to be happy or not happy about? What are the things that trigger off sort of um, uh, legal uh, interventions? Um, I mean, these days there are much fewer legal interventions. It it, it generally only tends to come up these days when people are trying to make money off it. Mm. So, you know, the the Harry Potter... um, uh, there was a Barry Trotter parody, I think, and yes, there was an yeah. there was an Indian parody as well. Um, those tended to bring lawsuits because they were trying to make money. Um, so generally, if it's all kind of entirely fan based, not for profit, the, there is very little litigation these days. Um, I mean, back in the day, some authors were were a bit concerned with the uh, the kind of X rated element of some fa- fan fiction because there's there's quite a lot of rather saucy stuff out there, um, <laughs> and some char- you know some authors were very concerned about you know their characters being depicted in these rather explicit scenarios. Um, you know, I think J.K. Rowling had some concerns there, particularly because a lot of her characters are obviously you know children. Mm-hmm. Um, there are others who were uh, like Anne Rice was one of the most notorious um, for being like dead set against fan fiction. Um, so I think it, it very much kind of came down to how the authors saw their creations, really. And, and you know, whether they were happy for um, there was a phrase that was very common in, in the kind of fanfic community to, to let people play in their sandbox um, was a was a very common kind of phrase. Um you know, some authors like Neil Gaiman, for example, were, were totally OK with fan fiction. They absolutely loved the idea. Um, so I think a lot of it came down to this idea of, of emotional ownership, which was something that I explored in my my dissertation as well. The You know, obviously, the content creators, the authors have this emotional ownership over their characters quite separate from, you know, the, the legal ownership issue. Um, but I think a lot of fans feel a very similar kind of emotional ownership over um, mm. you know, kind of fanish material. They they feel probably quite rightly that this material wouldn't be successful, it wouldn't be as popular, it wouldn't be as widely known if it wasn't for people like them who kind of, you know, adopted it and loved it and made it a huge success. So, you know, there's this sort of strong element within the community that they contribute to its success just as much as, you know, the actual original output. Um, mm, absolutely. You know, and I yeah. think 
that really kind of then colours how people how people view fan fiction. Really, I think a lot of rights holders just see it as copyright infringement. Yeah, um, you know, straight copyright infringement. Whereas a lot of fans just feel like it's it's them interacting with material that they love. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, the interesting thing here is that it, there's nothing new in the development of fan fiction. People have taken stories and adapted them and changed them for hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of years. I mean, that's the nature of storytelling. The difference here is that we now live in a world where we can share things, where people can come together in communities and there are platforms that enable to, them to do that. So in some ways, that you know, the development of fan fiction, it, it is a, a history of the development of, of online communities and, 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 and online activity. Um, so, yeah, an interesting thing to track. I'm, I'm just reminded of when I was working at the British Library, we, we dug some orphan works out of the, the archives to make the point about orphan works. And there were a few sort of early prototype, well, not prototype, but, but early pieces of, of sort of fan fiction that were published from the early 80s. And I think there was one of the the professionals it was like a, an illustrated <laughs> cartoon of the professionals and i'm sure you could imagine it was one of the more salacious ones yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah interesting to see that that that's kind of what we're talking about rather than mm. it being a new phenomenon where people want these days to do some mess around with other people's works that's not mm -hmm. really how creativity works is it no and i think it it taps into something much older which is that who does our culture belong to um yeah. You know, I mean, the idea of people taking stories and remixing them and adding to them is is literally as old as time. It's as old as people have been telling stories. Um, mm, you know, mm. the entire history of humanity is really people telling stories and adding to them and editing them and adapting them. And, and you know, I think something very much ties well. into that. Yeah, tracing them back to where they actually originate is, is often so difficult. It can be lost in the mists of time, can't it, really? It's sort of, yeah, you get into the kind of work of, historians looking at manuscripts of going you know I'm thinking of some of the work I did when I was uh, uh, doing my history degree about the origins of King Arthur and the stories that were written in the 19th century which obviously came from much 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 earlier sources and you know retelling those stories it's yeah yeah and you think of some of like Shakespeare's most famous plays he mm -hmm. didn't he didn't come up with the stories quite often he didn't come up with the plot line he didn't come up with the characters you know a lot of it was based on you know material that existed previously and i i think that this kind of struggle this this sort of dichotomy between what belongs to culture and what belongs to an individual i think yeah. fan fiction really kind of sits at the crux of that because you know, once a piece of work becomes successful, whether it's a, a film or, or, you know, a television program or a book, you know, it enters popular culture and it kind of takes on a life of its own, really. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, it, and in order for it to do that and in order for it to be a commercial success, people have to have to fall in love with it and they have yes. to want to engage with it and they have to want to to interact with it and they want more of it. And, and that that's kind of where fan fiction comes from. So, you know, this idea of someone sort of writing something or creative something and, and then saying it's mine, yeah, you know, all locked down. You can't that's do it. anything with Nobody it. Nobody else yeah. can touch it. If, yeah. if if people had kind of taken that attitude throughout history, our our culture would be utterly impoverished, really. Mm. We wouldn't have half the things that we love today because, you know, no one would have been able to build on it or edit it or adapt it or be inspired by it. And it reminds me of a, uh, something I heard uh, Philip Pullman say in his excellent uh, interview with Adam Buxton on, on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago about 
being an author, there comes a point when you you finish writing a book, you create it, and it no longer belongs to you. Up until that moment, it's yours, it's your world. And it, uh, he wasn't talking about remixing or or adapting. It was more to do with the fact that if anybody reads it, then they bring their interpretation to it. It's it, you know whatever they think it means, and however they want to read it, that that's up to them. And you kind of have to let go. So it's that that interesting um, uh, you know, aspect of, of authorship and creativity. Mm. But as you, you're mentioning that um, tension between individual ownership and, you know, for, for want of a better term, a, a wider cultural commons, it's making us, making me think certainly, about your involvement with Wikipedia and mm-hmm. the fact that last year you were Wikimedian of the Year. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um... It was a bit of a surprise to me, for a start, because I didn't actually know I was nominated for it until they announced that I'd won it. Um, but I, I'm a huge fan of Wikipedia. I think it's an absolutely amazing resource. Um, and I, I found that I, I got very frustrated with the kind of knee-jerk reaction to Wikipedia in higher education, which is, no, no, you mustn't use it. It's not reliable. Don't go there. Um, and, I, and I found that very frustrating because initially I just thought, well, we have to talk to students about why they shouldn't use it. We have to make sure that they understand how it works. Yeah, of course. You know, otherwise, we're just basically saying it's taboo. And, and yeah, it's know. bad. Don't use it. You know, and that's with students, of- that's that's be like, okay, that's, that's that sounds good to me. You know, mm. you tell someone not to do something, and the first thing they're going to do is go off and explore it. So I thought, if we really don't want students using, um, you know wikipedia within academia then we have to talk to them about what it is and how it works and why we say don't use it Mm. um and for me the more i kind of explored wikipedia and and you know just started tinkering with it myself and doing a few edits i started thinking actually quite apart from wikipedia as a resource which you know has its strengths and its weaknesses like any other kind of resource i thought the actual act of writing and editing wikipedia articles actually exercises all of those skills that as an academic librarian I'm called in to teach so mm. you know you you edit a wikipedia article you know you write one from scratch you're having to research you're having to reference you're having to you know sort of plan out and and, and structure an, an essay or well an article you know you're having to think about the audience you're having to think about your tone how you write you know writing in a readable style you know you have to think about things like copyright in terms of the material that you're using and Absolutely. I just thought I, I teach students literally all of these things yeah yeah you know, why am I not using Wikipedia to, to teach this yeah, yeah, you know, yeah and yeah. then it's the double whammy of they're learning about it they understand how it works they're kind of you know seeing behind the curtains so they they get much more understanding of you know the fact that people who write wikipedia articles are people just like you and me and and we're not necessarily experts in it um so i, I just found that actually it's 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 a fantastic teaching and learning tool um yeah. because you can teach students so much about all of these kind of academic and literacy skills using wikipedia as a tool Mm. um and you can touch on bigger issues as well you know you can you can look at the the gaps in wikipedia you can look at the areas where it doesn't have good coverage you know you can you know you can explore issues of kind of systemic racism you know systemic bias you know symbolic annihilation you can kind of touch on all of these issues by what wikipedia doesn't cover and who doesn't get involved um, as well as all those kind of digital literacy skills. So I, I just found that actually far from being a resource that they shouldn't touch, 
I think every student should be editing Wikipedia. Yeah. So you mentioned yourself, you've been adding to and editing um, entries, because I think that's something that, you know, is is really important. And it's also something that's been recognised, isn't it, about, um, you know, minority sort of voices, women being underrepresented. What what sorts of entries have you been um, adding to or creating yourself on Wikipedia? Or would you, would you give us a broad category? Is it about fan fiction? Is it? <laughs> it's all it's all over the place, really. Um, yeah. I've created some articles on um, female artists um a lot of what i do on wikipedia is um reference adding um you know making use of those kind of research skills um yeah. there's a a, a, pro, a a kind of program sort of a campaign called um hashtag one lib one ref which is designed to sort of harness the power of librarians to add references to wikipedia um because obviously there are a lot of wikipedia articles that don't have you know sufficient references yeah. um so a, a lot of what i do these days you know just mainly because i'm so busy is more about adding references and you know doing the odd thing here and there rather than sitting down and writing a, a whole article mm. um but i i just i think it's such a it's such a good resource i honestly think it's one of the best things the internet has ever produced mm. um which is not to say that it it doesn't have its flaws because it absolutely does um and one of the major challenges of wikipedia i think is is also one of its sort of major strengths is also its weakness in that it's absolutely created by this this vast army of, of volunteers, but those volunteers tend to be rather homogenous. You know, they tend yeah. to be white, young, Western men. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they tend to write about the things that interest them, which is one of the reasons why Wikipedia has this real gap when it comes to female subjects. Mm. You know, it's it's one of the reasons why if if you want to read about, you know, Marvel movies or sportsmen or things like that, you know, Wikipedia coverage is, is amazing. Mm. But, you know, if you want to look at more diverse areas, if you want to look at, you know, things outside of, of you know, North America or, or Western Europe, its coverage is not so great. No. So, you know, that's and that's something that's really interesting to explore with students as well, because I think we don't often get the opportunity, um, you know, within the curriculum or even outside of it to really talk to students about the information sources that they use and how those actually get created and how that there can be, you know, bias and flaws within those sources. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's a really interesting conversation to be having with students. I think particularly, you know, in this kind of era of decolonization, when we hear a lot about, you know, de decolonizing the academy, decolonizing libraries. Mm. And I think recognizing the limitations of the information sources that are available to us and how they are subject to all these wider forces in terms of, you know, market forces, in terms of audience. Um, you know, I, I often talk to students these days about how sort of 80% of the world's top 50 publishers are based in either, you know, the US or the UK, which obviously really distorts the picture. Um, because it's it's you know US or UK um, authors writing about US and UK issues a lot of the time, or or at least bringing that perspective, mm. um, and that that has a huge impact on you know our studies and our education because it means that we're not getting access to that wider world of information. You know, people writing in in other countries and other continents don't get that platform. They don't get to have those voices heard. Um, no, no, and it, it, you know that kind of white western experience is very much presented as the universal default um and it, it absolutely 100 percent isn't um and i think wikipedia can can do a lot to fill in that gap 
um, yeah, if, yeah. if we can really broaden the pool of people who are who are editing it. So that's that's one of the things I'm trying to do. <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic initiative. And just you mentioning publishers, um, I think one of the other areas that you've been quite heavily involved in recently um, is related to the the ebook um, academic sort of investigation, the ebook SOS um, hashtag on Twitter about um, looking at you know what titles are available under the licensing models etc do you want to say a bit about that that's campaign yeah so um i'm one of the the kind of organizers behind the the ebook sos campaign um so it was it was kickstarted by um joanna anderson um from the university of gloucestershire um so she's kind of really the driving force behind it mm. um but myself and uh, rachel blickley um who is from london met university are kind of the, sort of the minions in the background i guess you could say um lending support and, um, and and basically this this campaign is really kind of pushing back against academic publishers in terms of their sort of pricing practice, their their selling practice. Um, I think we all just got sick and tired of of running into time and time again, you know, ebooks that were just not available for libraries to buy, or ebooks that were only available in expensive packages, um, you know, ebooks that cost a thousand percent more than the print book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's been an issue for years. Um, but I think the pandemic kind of really brought it into focus because, uh, you know, my own library, probably like a lot of other libraries, aren't buying print books at the moment. Mm. You know, with with so many students not on campus and so many students not able to to come to the library, even though we're open, um, we aren't buying any print books. We are focusing exclusively on ebooks, and and yet time and again we're finding that we can't provide the ebooks that we need to our students. Um, either because they're only available for sale to individuals, so they're not available to libraries at all, or when they are available to libraries, they're just priced so expensively that we just can't afford them. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's pretty common to to see a book that costs you know thirty forty pounds in print costing a thousand fifteen hundred sixteen hundred for an ebook, um, and you know library budgets tend to be kind of vulnerable at the best of times but when universities are struggling financially it's one of the most liquid areas so it tends to be an area that gets cut before obviously estates and staffing and things all that money is tied up the library budget is this pot of money that hasn't been spent yet so it's often the one that kind of gets tapped into and um you know, with ebooks costing so much, it just means that we're so much more restricted in what we can provide to our students. And uh, I think, you know, the three of us basically just got tired of having to go back time and again to to lecturers and say, I'm sorry, I can't buy this book, you know, for whatever reason. And it's just, it's it's unethical. It's It's just very, very unethical practice. And, you know, we've seen prices go up since the pandemic. So there's, there's no question that academic publishers are taking advantage of this situation. Um, and I guess we just thought, it, you know, enough is enough, really. Um, yeah. And we need to start pushing back on this because it's not an isolated incident. It's not something that just happens to a few institutions. It's a, across the sector, um, as evidenced by how the campaign has kind of really, really taken off. And we've had, you know, I think getting on for sort of 4,000 signatures across, you know, academics and lecturers yeah. and it managers. Has, yeah. it's, it's been in the BBC and the Guardian. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think now people are kind of aware of this issue which I think previously was probably just known to librarians and we you know librarians don't tend to shout very much about (laughs) the work (laughs) that we do you know we kind of just tend to grumble amongst ourselves and get on with things um 
And I think now, you know, a lot of academics actually realise, you know, what the state of the, the industry is. And, and a lot yeah. of them are quite horrified by it, really. Absolutely. Particularly when it's sometimes their own books. Yeah. 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 I mean, we have had occasions where our academics have published books and we can't buy them. Mm-hmm. You know, either we can't afford it or that publisher actually won't sell it to the library. Either they just won't sell it full stop or it's in a, you know, we have to buy a thousand other ebooks in order to get that one ebook or it's just too expensive. So, I, I mean, I think this is something that Jane and I certainly um, support the campaign. We both signed um, mm. the letter. Um, but I, th- I think one of the challenges for, for those in the library community is if we think about this from a, well, what is copyright law? It's supposed to create the market conditions where authors and those who invested authors can create products that then get bought at a certain rate. And you could say as a counter argument, well, that's just market forces. You know, universities um, have a lot of money. There are students paying a lot of money in fees and they need the content. And, you know, this is what it costs to get access to this. And you get all this, uh, you know, uh, extra uh, additional access through it being electronic now i mean many of those i'm not asking you to counter uh, all of those arguments because i think we would oh well <laughs> i'm certainly going to hand this over to you in a moment mm-hmm. um uh, because uh, yeah I, I can i can i can um guess the kind of things that you would say to that certainly about you know how much better these electronic products are than than the original print ones but, but i think the thing I, I wanted to sort of focus on is that the market economics of how libraries work is not well understood in, in the public mind, is it? But I think there's there's a, there's a sense that, oh, you know, well, if you're accessing all this stuff, then, you know, they sh- you have to pay all this money. But libraries have always inhabited a certain position within the sort of information economy, if you like. And that's why we have copyright exceptions. That's why we have specific schemes that are there in order to balance out that public versus private interest. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realise is is how imbalanced the market is in terms of who benefits and who doesn't. Um, I, you know, I think there's yeah, there's a very sort of clear understanding that somebody creates a product, they they sell it, they get you know they get financial remuneration for that. You know, an author writes a book, it goes on sale. You know, people buy copies of it, that goes back to the author. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to academic publishing, it's actually really not that simple. Um, you know, I think partly with books, but even more so with journals, the publishers are getting a lot of this product completely for free. So they aren't paying for it. Um, you know, when you when you talk about books, the authors do get a certain amount of remuneration, although it's, it's often not a lot at all. Mm. But I think particularly when you start talking about academic journals, um, and, you know, we are talking about the same publishers here, the same publishers publish books as journals, so it's very much connected. Um, you know, the academic publishing industry has one of the highest profit margins in the world. Their profit margin is higher than Apple. It's higher than Google because they don't pay for the product. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they don't pay authors to write journal articles. They don't pay peer reviewers to review them. They don't pay editors to edit them. And then they sell that same product back to libraries for absolutely scandalous amounts of money. And just rake in the profit. Mm. And, and you know, quite often you can find that, that universities can be paying several times over effectively and that they're paying the salaries of people to do the research. You know, they're, they're often paying the funding for the research to take place as well. 
then they're paying for the library to subscribe to the journal in which that research is published. So you've got a university effectively paying three times for the same amount of material and the publisher gets it for free. Mm. And, you know, the whole kind of system of that is just scandalous, really, when you start looking into it and start making people aware that publishers are just raking in all this material that Mm. they're repackaging and selling back to libraries and they've not paid a penny for it. So do you think do you think the pandemic has um, actually brought this much more sharply into focus, you know, and, and brought it to people's attention, perhaps? Because it's not it's not a new situation that you're describing. I mean, I know, you know, there's a kind of history to it sort of developing in the late 80s and the 90s as it became increasingly commercialised, the world of academic publishing. But it's not a new thing, is it? It's kind of it's, it's you know, but maybe might we get to a kind of tipping point that, that, you know, academic authors might start to sort of say, well, we need something different? I think certainly the issue about academic journals and the academic journal publishing industry is something that's been circulating for for years. You know, Mm. it's it's been sort of very well established within academic circles that the whole system is ridiculous. And and that's where, you know, the movement for open access and Plan S and all of these various kind of schemes has has come from, you know, this idea that the academic journal publishing is, is really broken. But I think because ebooks were largely for students, I don't think the focus was there in the same way. And because, mm-hmm. um, you know, up until the pandemic, you know, libraries, if they were faced with a book that wasn't available as an ebook or, or, or wasn't, um, you know, wasn't within their price range, would just go, oh, well, we'll buy more print copies. You yeah. Know, that was always yeah. the kind of fallback position. And, and you know, ebooks were a, a nice to have rather than the kind of imperative that they are now. Yeah. So I think it really is the pandemic and, and this idea that we have to have it electronically yeah. um, that's really kind of brought all this to the surface. Um, and I suspect if it wasn't for the pandemic, it probably would continue to be a, a thing that librarians got annoyed about. But it wasn't quite so pressing and it wasn't quite so urgent because we could just fall back on we'll buy more print copies. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I, I can think of examples of textbooks in our library where we would love to buy an ebook of it. We would absolutely love to. Um, you know, mm. we've got 40 plus copies of the print book. Mm. And, and that's part of the problem is, is you know, the publishers kind of see print as, as still being more profitable for them. They still see that as their primary focus, you mm. know. And so why would they want to make an ebook available to a library when that library is buying 40 copies of the print book because it's such a core text? Yeah. Um, but that is, that is the thing, I think, that, that you know, when when you kind of do look into it, it, it's not students who bought the book, is it? It is the libraries that have bought it in multiple copies often. Yeah, so I mean, it's, you're not you're not kind of, you know, in a way, the, the days of students buying textbooks in large numbers. I mean, we're, 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 they're gone, aren't they? Really? Yeah, I mean, when I was a student, you know, back in the mists of time and I won't say how long um you know you understood that you had to buy a certain proportion of your books you know you got your reading list before you before you rocked up on campus and uh you know you were aware that you know you were expected to buy quite a large number of these maybe not all of them and maybe the library would have some of them but it was very much understood I think that you were expected to buy books so that was Mm. part of, of going to university but I think now that you know originally sort of tuition fees and then top up fees and then you know fees got to the, the the level that they are now I think students increasingly feel like the book should all be provided the book should yeah. all be part of this this large sum that they're paying and so increasingly I think students feel like they shouldn't have to buy any books that that should all be you know covered under that that fee um 
And I think that's quite reasonable to a certain extent for them to, you know, take that kind of approach that at least the core texts should be available um, within the library. Obviously, we won't have copies for everyone. Um, so I think students don't buy books anymore. No. I think I think academic publishers still sort of rely on that old kind of music piracy argument, which is mm. that if someone can access it for free, that's a lost sale somehow, mm. you know, because otherwise that person would have absolutely 100% gone out and bought it. And, yeah. you know, just because you can access something for free on the internet doesn't mean you would have otherwise bought it. Just because a library provides an ebook to a student doesn't mean that student would otherwise absolutely have gone out and bought it. No, the, you know, no. the reality is they'd have probably just done without it. Mm. But I think that that argument is one that the, the publishers still rely on a lot. This idea that they have to, you know, they have to price things the way they do to make up for lost sales. That, the, yeah. you know, the reason they don't make um, ebooks available to the library is because, you know, then students won't buy them. But, you know, barring a few texts, I think a lot of students just don't buy books anyway. No, So it's, it's no. you know, it's a fallacious argument, really. But it is one that, you know, they still fall back on. Mm, mm, mm. It will be interesting to see how it pans out because this, you, obviously, that the letter's out there. Um, you know, hopefully we'll see a positive response. But so much of the, the policy um, focus is on open access journal papers, open access research. And I think we, we've very much seen that, that access to material for teaching for students is quite low down on the priority list. So yeah. maybe it is the fact that the pandemics have come come along and the students, you know, cannot have not been able to get into the libraries um, has, has prompted this you know, to be looked at seriously. Uh, mm. Because, I mean, there's a, there's a very clear uh, case here for for openly licensed material created, I would say, with, uh, you know, proper uh, remuneration to the authors with proper processes that, that allow them and an, an agreed um, ways of, you know, addressing that within their terms of employment or whatever, rather than just putting more squeeze onto academics. I think that's a key thing to avoid. I think that's one of the frustrating things in a way is that we absolutely have the expertise and the talents within higher education to, to do this. Mm. You know, um, you know, these these academic publishers very much need academics more than actually we need them. You know, mm. there is absolutely the expertise within higher education to, to start doing open access, to start working more collaboratively, to start, you know, creating our own open access systems. And, and you know, many institutions do. You know, I think you know, we, we need to start working more sort of collaboratively as a sector. And, and that's kind of one of the challenges, really, because getting academics often to, to work cohesively across the sector is a bit like herding cats. Um, <laughs> you know, all that My expertise and knowledge and know-how and funding is probably out there. We, we just have to stop directing it towards, you know, these academic publishers who are only interested in profit. They're not interested in the well-being of, of students. They're not interested in, in the well-being of academics. They're not interested in the in the furthering of, of scholarly knowledge it, you know it's profit let's face yeah. it you know yeah. and they they need academics far more than academics need them I mean mm. uh, you know I I haven't published a huge amount but I, I found it quite interesting that the uh, the publication that I've written that's had the most citations is my unpublished master's dissertation just because it was out there on the internet yeah uh, you know people will discover things if they're out there 
Um, you know, and there's been all kinds of studies that have demonstrated that that papers that are published open access get more citations than than papers that are published in you know paywalled journals. So I, I think we just need sort of academia to realise that we we don't need academic publishers as much as they need us. Mm. You know, and that a lot of that power is in our own hands, and that we need to start pushing back. Mm. Which is what we're trying to do with ebooks, and there's a there's a a campaign that's just started circulating, I think, over this last week. Um, no to Elsevier, which is about academics, um, you know, saying we don't need Elsevier, we shouldn't be, you know, paying for these huge deals. Um, you know, the institutions should start signalling their willingness to do without Elsevier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those kind of messages need to happen more, you know, and and academia needs to kind of you know work collectively and and work across the sector and and recognize that we we don't need these publishers that the you know the added benefits that they claim they bring aren't really anything special you know i mean they talk about ebooks and they talk about added functionality and and you know the kind of functionality they're talking about isn't anything that you can't do with any decent pdf annotation tool you know <laughs> highlighting and adding notes and things like that i mean yeah it's, it's nothing groundbreaking. Um, no, and a lot no. of the time, the DRM that's embedded in these ebooks actually stops users from, you know, bringing their own functionality to it. It stops a lot of accessibility tools from working. Um, I think Pearson, disgracefully, have, have blocked um, students from being able to print, being able to copy, being able to, you know, do anything, which yeah. they actually have a right to do under copyright legislation. Um, but, you know, Pearson's DRM is blocking that. So, you know, what 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 do they bring to these ebooks that's worth the amount of money that we're paying? Mm-hmm. Not a lot, as far as I can see. I'm 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 sensing we need another jingle here. I think we can. Uh, <laughs> it will take us nicely into bring us about. bring us down a couple of notches from yeah, uh, and sensed the, and sensed discussion about yeah. Uh, get, get me off my soapbox. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're 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 calling out. You know, we're we're sort of doing a Bonnie Tyler here, calling out for a hero, I think, or something. <laughs> or. Uh, <laughs> Starting out and in our time of need, their wisdom, grace, and eloquence inspires us to succeed. They're the people who we work with, brighten up our day, and validate our pedantry and send us on our way. They are copyright heroes. You enjoyed that, didn't you? Oh, I love it. I was dancing in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the people who inspire you um, in your work, who, who who would you say are your copyright heroes, Caroline? You mean apart from you two? <laughs> I bet everybody oh. says that. Or you didn't have to say that. <laughs> um, yes. In addition to us, <laughs> the people that I would probably say, and this is this is probably a, this is a, a sort of obscure fan fiction reference, but it's it's the people behind um, something called AO3, which is Archive of Our Own, which is an online fanfic um, archive, um, and it was it was set up by an organisation, a non-profit organisation called the uh, Organisation for Transformative Works, um, and it was basically kind of set up in an in response 
effectively to a lot of these kind of cease and desist and takedown um, kind of activities that were going on. And, and, you know, because a lot of the kind of fan fiction that people were creating was set up on, you know, web, web, you know, web hosting stuff like GeoCities back in the day, um, it was really designed to set up a, a, a hosting archive that was owned by fans so that it couldn't be, you know, taken down and have stuff deleted and, and removed at whim. Um, so yeah, it was, yeah. it was uh, the Organisation for Transformative Works. Um, and I'd say they're my copyright heroes um, because, mm-hmm. it, you know, AO3 it's, you know, stands for archive of our own. So A and then three zeros. Um is one of the most used websites now I think in in the world it gets you know like billions of hits it's probably used as much as Wikipedia these days it's got you know billions of users um and it's all entirely non-profit you know run by volunteers um the organization for transformative works was originally set up to be a kind of legal support for fans who got you know these kind of cease and desist letters and takedown messages and things like that so it originally started out as a kind of um legal support entity basically sort of for fans um and then it, it went into kind of creating um you know the the archive of our own and it it's done a lot of kind of advocacy um particularly in america um, yeah, yeah. in terms of of you know kind of fair use and, and transformative works and, and arguing for the legality of it um and the archive itself, archive of our own, won a Hugo Award in 2019. Um, the Hugo Awards are kind of like the the most prestigious um, sort of science fiction awards. Um, yeah. And archive of our own won a Hugo Award, basically as an archive of fiction. Um, so I think I think my that would be my obscure copyright hero. I think <laughs> yeah, the Organisation for Transformative Works. Fantastic. 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 I, I hadn't heard of them. So no, we'll neither definitely... had I at all. I was wondering if they were similar to like the um, Ele- Electronic Frontier Foundation or something like that. Uh, I yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll look them up. We'll pop some links into the um, the, the description with the, the, the podcast, won't we? Yeah, yeah. So uh, one thing we, we suspect that you may have up your sleeve, given that your involvement in copyright, is some interesting... Uh, nerdy facts or uh, geeky Caroline, anecdotes. Caroline did use the phrase nerd about herself as well. I think so, so yeah. <laughs> so, so is there something that, say, you're at a party and the the the, the you know topic strays onto copyright? Um, as it you does. Would, yeah, as it as it sometimes does. How do you keep the, their interest? What how how would you dazzle them? Um, my kind of favourite go-to sort of nerdy story about copyright is uh, is the one about It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, um, about basically how the only reason It's a Wonderful Life has become the kind of, you know, pop cultural icon that it has, the kind of classic movie that it has. It's it's regularly and, you know, voted the sort of the greatest movie of all time. Um, Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Sorry. We, we might have to start that bit again. Sorry, <laughs> we had a FaceTime call coming through from my mum. <laughs> oh, no! Back. It's, it's your mum's marimba. There we go. Oh, my goodness. Sorry. Tell her to put her marimba away and uh, <laughs> we'll get Caroline to start again. So, <laughs> your favourite nerdy fact about copyright? Um, I can't promise you won't do it again. <laughs> So, yeah, my favourite kind of nerdy fact about copyright is is probably the story about It's a Wonderful Life. Um, 
which is one of those movies I think that everybody watches at Christmas, you know, loads of people kind of love and say it's one of their favorite movies of all time. Um, I, I personally watch it every Christmas Eve. I absolutely love It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and I think one of the things that not a lot of people know is that it was an absolute flop when it was first released. Um, totally flopped at the box office. Um, I don't think it even made its operating costs back. Um, you know, it, it totally sank basically. Um, and the, the primary reason why it went from that to such a kind of classic film is, is copyright basically. Um, because sort of back in the day in America, um, before they kind of reformed copyright, uh, I think things were only in copyright for 28 years. Um, and then they had the option to be able to renew it for another 28 years. So um, It's a Wonderful Life was released in 1946. Um, and in 1974, it was coming up for, for renewal. And for whatever reason, you know, technical issues, a, a clerical error, they forgot to renew the copyright. So in 1974, It's a Wonderful Life entered public domain, which meant that Anyone could put it on television, anyone could air it, anyone could screen it, anyone could put it on, you know, VHS. It was totally public domain. Um, and this meant that a lot of um, television networks in America, um, and obviously the thing about America is that it has national networks and local networks, hundreds yeah. of local networks. Um, and they all went, oh, look, there's this film that we don't have to pay for. So it was on endlessly um, over the Christmas season in America for about 20 years. Just every Christmas, it would be on every channel. Um, and that meant that people kind of grew up watching it. They grew up being exposed to it and absolutely just fell in love with it. Mm. So, you know, one of the reasons why um, it is the, the classic it is today is because it fell out of copyright. Mm. Um, and, you know, there's a very good argument to be made that if it had stayed in copyright, it would have remained a, a yeah. box office bomb. Absolutely. It's, it's a kind of real um, story, you know, about the, the power of open, isn't it, in many yeah. ways? And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and the, the public domain, is, the power of having something in the public domain, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and the sad thing is, I think it, it ended up back in copyright again um, yeah. after yeah. about 20 years or so. But there was this sort of 20-year period from the sort of mid-70s to the mid-90s where it was public domain, played endlessly, you know, loads of people kind of grew up with it, and it, it entered popular culture then as this kind of classic much loved film that is you know mm. regularly featured in the sort of top 10 lists and considered you know the greatest film of all time but yeah yeah you know, there's a real good <laughs> argument to be made that it wouldn't have done i've got a terrible confession to make I'm are afraid. you gonna tell me you've never, You're gonna seen, say you've never seen it i've never seen it I've never seen. I tell you what, I have I'll, seen. I'll, I'll be totally I tell you honest. What, I think I've only ever seen bits of it. I've seen. I think I've seen I, but I, I tell you what, I have seen. There was an episode of Sorry, the sitcom starring Ronnie Corbett, where they they <laughs> did favorite, a sort of potted version of it. So I've seen that. Does that count? Well, I'm just thinking, would have that would would that have been pre 1993? I th it would have been pre 1993. Then they would have been able to do that and do a version of it because it was in the public domain. Mm. Oof. But then again, it probably wasn't in the public domain of the UK, which means maybe they made it. Would, did you think that Sorry, starring Ronnie really Corbett, had a particularly big US market? Party, <laughs> you two. At this point, I'm probably off to get myself another drink because I think. If you two are going to go down the kind of was it in the public domain in the UK versus the US, and yeah, I, I'm just off to get another drink if anyone wants one. Sorry. Well, I'm just I'm just remembering Ronnie Corbett now. Apologies for having taken us down that cul-de-sac. The but, uh, that, side, I've never seen anything with Ronnie Corbett in. 
Oh. oh well okay oh. <laughs> we've got we've got a we've yes. well, I've got an idea we're going to do some two runnies now, Caroline. We, can put, anyway. <laughs> we can put that right we can send you some clips from sorry you'll enjoy it <laughs> only as long as you guys watch it's a wonderful life okay, yes okay we, we yeah promise although we probably need to wait till christmas don't we probably yeah, yeah okay yeah i know that much that it's a good <laughs> Uh, okay, it's time for another jingle, Chris. It's time Is for another jingle. Okay. Copyright news, 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 copyright news. Copyright news. So, um, Caroline, can you share something interesting and topical related to copyright with us? What's kind of going on in the copyright world that you might have been aware of? Um Let's see. Well, there's kind of two things that spring to mind. Um, the first was, uh, I don't know if you heard this this sort of news story about uh, Metallica. Um, and uh, they... <laughs> it's like a bit of heavy metal? This is, this is very geeky. It's all about Metallica, Twitch and an online convention. Um, obviously, Twitch is the, the kind of online gaming streaming service. Um, yeah. And there was a, an online convention being hosted a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, and they actually had Metallica performing. Um, so kind of performing live and being streamed on Twitch. Um, but the reason why it's interesting is because Twitch basically replaced Metallica's live performance with royalty-free music to avoid getting a, a DMCA takedown. <laughs> now, the reason this is interesting is because one of the reasons why the DMCA even exists is because of Metallica doing yeah. Napster back in the day. So Metallica's kind of karma has finally come home. Um, and so people watching this this live performance on Twitch saw Metallica, you know, rocking out on yeah, stage yeah, yeah. and had some lovely plinky plonky elevator music over no. the top of it because Twitch were afraid of getting a takedown notice from the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which largely exists because of Metallica. You do know your nerdy facts about copyright. I tell you, this, this, this okay, I'll, I'll come back from the drinks from this party. What's what's the next one? What's the next news um, item then? Well, the other one I, I thought was very interesting was this whole issue with uh, Facebook and the Australian government um, and this issue about news articles appearing right. on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Australian government is is debating um, legislation that means that Facebook and, and other kind of social media networks would have to pay mm. news um, providers for the content um, that they use on their platform. So obviously, currently, people can share news stories on Facebook. Um, and, you know, Facebook just puts little summaries of them up there and it's all totally free. Um, the Australian government is sort of considering this copyright infringement and basically saying that if Facebook is going to incorporate, uh, you know, other people's material in its platform, it should be paying for it. Um, and so recently, Facebook sort of flexed its muscles a little bit, I think, with the Australian government by basically pulling any news sources from um, either from anyone in Australia, I believe, um, or anything where the material came from Australia. Right, so yeah. Australians basically woke up and find that huge swathes of Facebook pages and groups had just disappeared of content mm. because Facebook had said, well, if you want us to pay for it, we're not going to, so we'll just remove it and, yeah. and see what happens. Um, so I thought that was very interesting and it would be very interesting to see where that legislation goes, whether Facebook's kind of flexing of its muscles has intimidated the Australian government or, or whether they think, you know, because this issue about 
is linking to stuff copyright infringement is incorporating yeah. links within other sites copyright infringement is one that's circulated for years really it has, and, hasn't it yeah and there's it, never I, really been any consistency never really been any kind of legislation one way or the other on it it's really interesting i think to see what's happening in that because mm-hmm. this is being australia is is where it's happening right now but this is the thing that's playing out all over the world um where you've you've effectively got these the, the tech companies, the social media companies, it, it, yeah, squaring up to to governments because copyright and those 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 laws are there to to create a, a balance, uh, ideally between the creation and the dissemination of information. But the, the power that the social media companies have over the you know the narrative, um, and I'm not quite sure where I sit on that, you know, who's right, who's wrong. It's much more complicated than that, obviously, yeah. is the answer. Um, but but I, I don't necessarily think that those small number of, of highly profitable commercial organisations, the, the tech companies, should have all that power. There needs to be this idea should be something that's more democratic. But mm-hmm. also, if you think about it, well, the government is in, trying to implement a law which is a pretty blunt instrument, really, that is trying to say a link is or is not something that needs to be remunerated in a certain way. So it's it, it's it's, it's a an really, interesting one, isn't yeah. it? And the, the ramifications of it could be much broader reaching, because if, mm-hmm. you know, if if a link is copyrighted material, that almost puts pay to the internet as we know it if you can't mm-hmm. link to something or, or even include a sort of short short summary of it as part of the link mm. that would bring huge swathes of the internet to a screeching halt really um yeah so and the- that was and that was the argument i think that some people were making over the european directive on the digital single market and you know what what they were terming this link kind of tax and yeah 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 so it, i'm, I'm in the same position i I kind of feel like a link is not copyright infringement. But no. then on the flip side, you look at how much of, of Facebook and these kind of platforms rely on that content. Yeah. yeah. And think, well, hang on, shouldn't they be paying something for it? Because a huge, a huge part of what they sell is this functionality. You know, hey, you can share links, you can share content. You know, mm-hmm. and that's a, a core of what a lot of social media is about. Absolutely. So if it's a sort of central platform of their operating, shouldn't, Shouldn't there be some remuneration there? So it yeah yeah, and it is, it is also it. I think it links, doesn't it, to to kind of you know the, the the old media and the loss that they've seen in their advertising revenues and how you know it, uh, what do we want? Do we want sort of quality journalism and are we prepared to pay for that as well? Or you know if if it's all fair game to just grab all the links and and Facebook to monetize that? It's you know, what does that say about, you know, quality journalism having a future? Mm. You know, and, and depending on the legislation, are, are, would there be ways for companies to opt out of it? Mm. Would there be some platforms that said, no, we're happy for our content to still be shared in that way? Mm. Um, you know, would you end up with a kind of two tier system there? And then mm-hmm. you might have concerns about perhaps some of the more reputable sources saying, no, we don't want our content shared. And some of the ones that actually you think well let's let's not share this rubbish mm-hmm. yeah. the ones saying hey we're quite happy for it to be out there and you know all of that kind of issue about the discoverability of what's accurate and reliable starts coming into play as well Absolutely. On, on on that topic we have a question to ask you about where you would find information or news about copyright clearly you're staying on top of things even if that's not the primary focus of your current role so so yeah. where would you go 
Well, ironically, considering what we've just been talking about, um, social media. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Twitter um, actually is is one of the Mm. best sources, I find, for staying up to date on on so many things, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, not just sort of copyright, but, you know, loads of elements of of my job as an academic librarian. I I honestly find Twitter and, and, you know, following organisation accounts, following individual accounts, following experts, I, I find one of the best ways to stay up to date on almost any topic. Um, I think there's not a day that goes by when I don't, you know, stumble across an article or a resource or a conference or a a paper or something that I wouldn't have come across, um, you know, any other way, really. So I I think Twitter's amazing, apart from all the idiots on there. But, you know, (laughs) if you you curate your own space, I know it's a filter bubble, but, you know, you can you. There's, there's a huge amount of really interesting, reliable, reputable, um, you know, expert people out there. Um, yeah. So any, I, I love like to call out. Is there any 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 people that you or organisations you think people should follow? Well, you know, there, there's these couple of people called Jane Secker and Chris Morrison. And they're pretty good on Twitter, you know. <laughs> and there's the, the, the Lacquer. There's you know Lacquer, the organisation. Yeah. Um, Obviously, there's the, the UK Copyright Literacy Twitter account, which is pretty good. Um, oh, that's, that's, we'll have to put that one on our list, won't we? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those are, and honestly, those are some of the ones that kind of spring to mind in terms of where I get a lot of my kind of copyright knowledge from. But, yeah. uh, you know, I think quite apart from kind of experts and um, organisations, I think people who are in roles you know, like, like I used to be, although, you know, I'm not a copyright advisor anymore, but you don't, you don't turn off the knowledge and you don't, you can't escape you can't the leave fact it that behind, can you? Oh, and you can't, can't escape the fact that, that no. people know you know about it. So yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you never really stop being a copyright advisor. No. Um, so, but I find that, you know, the accounts of people just like, just like me, you know, who like mm-hmm. stuff, who comment on it, who retweet it, you know, is, is also an excellent way of finding out material. Mm. Mm, fantastic okay now on to the really serious important stuff so i've been doing a bit of research on you i understand you like cupcakes is that true yes any other type of cakes have you got a particular favorite type of cupcake is it or is it any kind of cake really it would be easier to tell you what cake i don't like Um, (laughs) okay and that would be anything coffee flavored oh no i I hate coffee with a passion i am i'm a complete coffee free zone i i hate the smell of it i hate the taste of it so like coffee cake oh just like no okay okay any other kind of cake absolutely fine put away the big coffee cake that i just (laughs) made for you as that's one of my favourite cakes. It is one of your favourites. You were trying to get me to make you a coffee cake at some point. I'm, I, going I'm to sure to try to get to make. I'm you. not that keen. I mean, I don't, I don't hate it, but I'm not that keen. I, oh, see, I, I and then actually for years I didn't even drink coffee, but I just loved coffee flavoured things, coffee flavoured chocolates, and yeah. Although it's sort of slightly been surpassed by anything salty caramel. But this isn't a question about what type of cake I like. But any type of cake, more or less any type of cake, but salted caramel or carrot cake would be okay. My, okay, my so imagine cake. at this point we are presenting you with this amazing salted caramel cake. When we used to meet people in person, we did actually make them cakes oh. and take them along. I know, I know. We could, I think what we're going to have to do is have a bit of a backlog of baking. We'll have to go around <laughs> and meet everybody once we can actually get out and about that, that we spoke to during the pandemic and, and deliver them a handcrafted, I don't know, cupcake or something. 
Yes. Well, I, I well remember your copyright cupcakes at conferences that I've been to. <laughs> I, I remember those very well. I mean, there aren't there aren't many conference presentations you get to where you get given cupcakes. So <laughs> we like to make an impact, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, that's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Caroline. That was yeah, uh, a great much. conversation. Um, so we are, yeah, very grateful. And we wish you uh, every success in spreading the word about uh, Wikipedia, in fighting the good fight against um, unfair business practices in academic publishing and yeah, carrying on uh, with the fan fiction community and uh, everything else that you do. Yeah, well, yeah. Somewhere in there, there's my day job as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, thank but no, you. It's, it's lovely to actually get the opportunity to waffle on about copyright because, you know, most people, when I start talking about copyright, just kind of, you know, their eyes start drooping and, you know, rolling into the back of their heads and they start kind of shuffling away. And, and you know, that's that's the ones that don't just like throw things at me. So it's, it's really nice to be able to talk about copyright. <laughs> well, you can always talk to us about copyright. Absolutely. And and all, all sorts of other things but thank you and happy international women's day and um you we'll too. catch up with you on social media soon so Absolutely. thank you very much thank yeah. you Copyright waffle, copyright waffle, copyright waffle.